Seeking mental health care can be overwhelming and even scary, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dr. Josephine McNary, and I'm committed to making this process easier for you. Each week, my expert guest and I unravel a different form of therapeutic intervention in order to bring comfort and understanding and to help you get back to your true self. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. Today, I'm pleased to have on as our guest, Dr. Alexandra Karahakis, PhD, LMFT. She's the founder and clinical director of the Center for Healthy Sex in Los Angeles. She's a certified sex addiction therapist specializing in the treatment of sexual addiction and other sexual disorders. She's the author of What Turns You On, A Guide to Living Your Best Sex Life, as well as multiple other books. Today, we talk about what is healthy sexuality and the important clinical work she does with patients at the Center for Healthy Sex. Welcome. Thank you, Josephine. Nice to be here. So I'm excited to talk to you today because you have a specialty in human sexuality as well as sex therapy. Correct. I started considering this question in graduate school of what makes for a long-term erotic relationship because I didn't see it anywhere around me. And sadly, when I was, I think, 27, my parents divorced after about a 30-year marriage. And I didn't get married till later in life because I kept having these failed relationships. And so that became my query in graduate school. And I'm not sure, you know, 20 some odd years later, if I know much more, if anything, I have more questions, but I'm always posing the question of what is healthy sexuality and how do we each define it for ourselves, especially when we're on the background of a culture where there's an enormous amount of noise that's coming predominantly from the media, magazines, film, television, and also from internet pornography, which at one time in the 90s was relatively new. And today, pretty much everybody looks at internet porn. And sadly, a lot of our teen and young adults are getting their sex education from pornography. So that's sort of the background for how I came to start the Center for Healthy Sex 17 years ago also. And I mean, talk a little bit more about the type of services that you offer at your center. Well, my executive director, Douglas Evans, used to say that we're a psychosexual supermarket because we treat a broad array of sex and sexuality. So we look at issues of sexual desire and dysfunction. So pelvic pain disorders in women, sexual dysfunction in males, all the way to sexual addiction, compulsivity, partner betrayal trauma that goes with that, childhood sexual abuse, and most importantly, sexual pleasure and potential. So sexual health is not just about the absence of disease or dysfunction. It's really about sexual pleasure and potential, which is what my latest workbook, What Turns You On, is all about. It's about helping people figure that question out. Right, which is a big question. Yes. <laughs> okay, so maybe going back to this idea of the big question of what is healthy sexuality? I know different people have different definitions, but what is your broad definition of that? Well, I think a broad definition would be sex between two consenting adults. And that includes actually consenting sentient beings is what I would say. So animals can't consent, for example, any more than children or minors can in safe ways. So consenting adults where both parties feel like the experience adds to their sense of well-being. There's no coercion. There's no violence or anything of that nature. 
So that would be the broadest definition. And that sort of aligns with the World Health Organization's definitions as well. So at your center, what what's kind of the most common issue that you might see? What's the most frequent complaint that maybe someone would come in asking for help with? Well, I think with women, it's often vaginismus. That's mm-hmm. the number one pelvic pain disorder that we see. For men, it's issues of dysfunction, whether they're having erectile issues or premature ejaculation. In couples, there's always a desire discrepancy. So you've got a low desire and a high desire partner. And then of course, there's the whole sexual addiction slash compulsivity crowd who struggle mightily with intimacy and impulse control issues, typically the genesis of which come from the emotional abuse in their family of origin. So those are the broad categories that we treat and see here quite a bit. Yeah. And the treatment for each of those categories is quite different. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we do a lot of psychoeducation, but because these are deep psychological issues, we're not just engaging in symptom reduction. We're interested in long-term growth and change. And I see human sexuality as a developmental task. People have this odd idea that the kind of sex they were having at 19 or 20 or in their early 30s is the kind of sex they should be having in their mid to late 40s, 50s, and 60s. And bodies change over time. Our sexual preferences change. What turns us on changes because our bodies are changing. And so people can say things like, we're not having the same sex we had 20 years ago. And it's like, well, of course you're not. And why would you want to? And who are you sexually today? And that's not a script that people tend to update. We tend to marginalize our sexuality. We tend to compare it to what we see in the media or to what our younger selves did. And it's just amazing to me how many people give up on their sexuality. Like a lot of women just give up on it. And I think a lot of men just turn to porn and masturbation because it's quick and easy and they don't have to deal with the kind of gnarly interactions that interpersonal interactions require. Like it really requires us to grow up constantly in a lot of different ways. And that means we have to look at shame and why in our 40s or as a 50-year-old person, we feel shame for example, about certain sexual acts in front of our partner that we've been with for 20 or 25 years, or we don't even want to talk about what our current fantasies are or that we don't have fantasies. And so people's desire starts to tank at a certain point. And a lot of folks seem to just tolerate that. And I think that's how marriages come unraveled and why people cheat and start to configure their relationships in all sorts of odd and non-consensual ways. Yeah. One question, because I'm, I'm thinking about a listener who might be interested in this topic and if like has clicked on this podcast to, to listen to, thinking about maybe a case of low sexual desire. What would kind of a usual progression in therapy look like? To borrow from Barry McCarthy, who's a preeminent sexologist in the country, Actually, he and his partner, McCarthy and McCarthy, both wrote this book. Talk about, and preceding them, other sexologists have talked about that high desire and low desire are positions in a system. So one is not more functional than the other. 
And that's a starting point. The low desire person is always meant to feel like there's something wrong with them, as opposed to getting curious about what kind of sex they want to be having. And so we start there by thinking about being an intimate team, and that's the McCarthy's term, as opposed to being in a power struggle about who's right and who's wrong. So that both parties can start to get curious about this question about what they do and don't like sexually. And sometimes low desire actually has good judgment that they're tired of having mediocre or boring sex. So they just don't want to have sex, but they're afraid to talk about what they really do or don't want. And high desire can often look like they're more functional, but really they're more needy. They're the ones that are buying all the books and the videotapes and trying to jumpstart their partner's sexuality, which creates more pressure in the system and has low desire digging their heels in. And if you think about this from a systemic perspective, the low desire person in a relationship almost always controls what's going to happen, regardless of what the issue is. So let's say you and I are married and I want to buy a new car and you don't the chances are we're not going to buy a new car, right? Or you want to go on a vacation to some place and I just have no desire to go there. We're probably not going to go. So these are negotiations that are inherent in the system of quote marriage or any committed relationship. So the relational dynamics have to be looked at quite closely first and foremost Because the way people operate in their day-to-day living, the way they interact in the kitchen or at the dinner table is likely how they're having sex also. So the other question that often comes up when I'm talking to my patients about types of therapy that could be helpful for them, their relationship, there's this question about what is couples therapy? What is sex therapy? Are they the same? Are they different? Where's the overlap? Sure. Well, I have a bias about that. All sex therapists are couples therapists first and foremost, and rarely does a sexual problem exist in a vacuum. If somebody's having sexual problems and they're in a relationship, it is a couple problem. It's a systemic problem. So if your partner is struggling with erectile dysfunction, just sending him off to sex therapy by himself is a losing proposition because you're in relationship with each other. So this idea that sex therapists are just giving tips and techniques is really a very reductive idea about what sex therapy is. Sex therapy is talk therapy. And oftentimes when there are desire issues, for example, if you look at the relational dynamics, there's a resentment somewhere that has not been cleaned up or fears or concerns about but myriad of different things. So my bias is that sex therapy is the way to go unless you have a great sex life, but you have problems with communication, which is usually not the way it goes. And it's always shocking to me when people come to therapy at Center for Healthy Sex and they said, well, we were in couples therapy for three, five, seven years, but we never talked about our sex lives. And I think, how is that possible? How do you avoid talking about sex? So sex, I think, is a crucial part of any relationship, whether you have an agreement to not have it or you're having an agreement to have it. And also asking the crucial question of what is the purpose of sex in this relationship at this time, right? So when we're in our 20s, it's for fun and for free. And in our 30s, it can often be about starting a family. And starting a family 
can have its pressure to it. And then after the baby's born, then there's problems with sex afterwards or getting interested again. And then in our forties, it changes again. And then when we're empty nesters, it changes again. So it should be a constant conversation for people if they look at sex as a way to keep a positive emotional connection between the two of them over time, which is part of the original question I asked about what keeps that going. Well, I think sex does. And I think it does for reasons you would best understand, which has to do with the hormonal reactions that come from a result of sex. The feelings of well-being, of closeness, of connection, the way it impacts our physiology and our health and well-being over time. So if nothing more, it's good for that. Yeah. And you make a good point, this idea of being curious and open to how your sexuality and sex life will change over time. And it's interesting because I, I do know like a lot of patients that I see are in couples therapy, but they just don't talk about sex. And it is true. It's like a major part of someone's intimate life that's not really being addressed. That's right. And I think this is super silly, but I think when you are having sex with some regularity, whether it's once a month or once a week or a couple of times a quarter, depending on your age and what's going on in your life, that when your partner does something annoying, it's so much less annoying than if you're not having sex. Because we start to misperceive each other. We start to grind on each other in a particular way. And it's challenging when you've been with somebody for a long time and your parents and business owners and householders, and uh, you have in-laws and you've got big stressful lives to be open-hearted to that person and also see them as a human being that you have compassion for and as your lover also. So it's a big demand because we're constantly shifting perceptions of each other and we don't do it very well because it's a relatively new feature. This idea of being sexual over time in a long-term relationship. So that is a challenge really, I think, for all of us in some ways that I think is evolutionary. And that said, I don't want that to sound normative because for some people they're like, yeah, I don't want to be bothered with that. I would rather have two or three marriages or have an open marriage or that whole proposition is just too much work for me. I want to do something different. And I think today we're more open to alternative lifestyles than ever before. So the main point of any of them is honesty, getting honest with ourselves about what we want, what we like, what suits us at any particular time in our lives. And not just from a selfish perspective, but one that's also thinking about the bigger family system, the children, the impact of my desires on everybody else around me, and the timing, perhaps, of making those changes. So all to say it's very complicated, and it's unique to each human being and each couple. Right. It also sounds like you and your group, you're open to exploring different desires that people might have and the makeup of their decisions and choices and coming at it from not a judgmental space, but to say, okay, why do you want this? And how does this fit in? Is this work for you and the system that surrounds you? Yeah. I mean, really posing a lot of self-reflexive questions so that there's critical thinking involved. It's not about judgment. I don't think there's any one correct way to live. I do think that there are certain lines 
that I won't cross, some of which is mandated by the law as a therapist, but others have to do with that matter of consent, as I said, with innocence, people that cannot consent. But largely, if somebody is engaging in something as a consenting adult with another, then that's your life, not mine. It may not be for me, but that doesn't mean I don't think you should do it because it may not even be interesting or arousing to me, but that's not what I'm there for, obviously. So yes, the more open and non-judgmental and curious we can be as therapists, the greater the spaces that we can hold for each individual to discover what's true for them. Let's talk a little bit about your book. What would you use it for? Sure. Well, this workbook had a very interesting genesis. I wrote my dissertation on, I created a sexual health model for people in recovery from sex addiction. Because prior to that model, the sex therapy community, of which I am a member, was accusing the sex addiction people of being sex negative because there really wasn't a sexual health model. There wasn't a way forward. There was a way to stop the behaviors, but no way forward. And so I did a small research project and created a model and a way forward. So I created a workbook called Sexual Reflections, a guide to celebrating your sexual health plan, which is for people in recovery from sex addiction. And at that time, around 2018, I had a cadre of people in their early 30s that loved that workbook and said, you should really write a workbook that has nothing to do with sex addiction, but everything to do for people in their 20s and 30s about what turns you on. And so they really aggressively spearheaded it. And so they roughly outlined it and we brainstormed it. And then the pandemic came and they were no longer working at CHS. And so it became my pandemic project to complete it. And I found an illustrator in Germany who has got some very fun and clever illustrations throughout the workbook. So it turned into this beautiful query of this question of what turns me on, what turns you on. And it's super fun. It looks at all of the forces that have people constructing their ideas about sex and sexuality, from family of origin to religion, to culture, to pornography, to college and high school. So there's a lot of deconstruction that goes on. And then an understanding of sexual functioning. We talk about STIs, consent, and then looking very closely and giving suggestions and ideas about different sexual practices so people can rate them. They're also tracking their own arousal states as they go through the workbook. And then there are images for them to color and write stories about or write poems about as they unpack these things. Because we're trying to make a distinction between toxic shame and healthy shame and what's really true, what's an authentic sexuality for the person going through the workbook that is not being informed by the shoulds or shouldn'ts of the world. So it's super fun. It's designed to be a really fun workbook and like a diary of sorts that somebody can share with a trusted other or a therapist so that they have a clear direction of something to share with a partner or if they're dating, to be clear while they're dating about the kind of person they want to engage with sexually. That's so fascinating because I could imagine people might use it if they feel like they're not ready to yet engage working with a sex therapist, right? Kind of a way to kind of get started, become curious, start reflecting on their own sexuality in a way that maybe they just haven't figured out how to do before. Yeah. And it would be great 
for people to do it that are dating. They each have their own workbook and they do it separately. And then they compare notes after every chapter. Like, what did you come up with? What did you learn? And really sharing with each other what their history is sexually, how they came to be who they are sexually, what scares them. That's a big part of the questioning also. Um, What sort of titillates you? What are you a little interested in, but afraid of? So it's really very shame reducing and a highly sex positive look at this question of who am I and what turns me on. You know, I will make sure that the description of the book and a link to the workbook is on the description because I have a feeling that some listeners might be really interested in, in checking it out. Yeah. And it's great for listeners too, that maybe have kids in their 20s. I had a couple of young people helping me, like reading this along the way, namely my nephew, who's now 25. So he was one of my early editors to make sure this was hanging together for his cohort. It wasn't just this old lady writing this book for young people. That's an important job for an editor. (laughs) It it was, yeah. And so I had these 20-something males and 30-something males predominantly helping me look at what was true for their cohort And that was really meaningful because I think the book hangs together in a very modern way because of that. Well, I really appreciate you being on. I think this has been really helpful just to help demystify what sex therapy is, what sex therapists do, and just kind of maybe thinking about why someone might be interested. Yeah, I hope when people hear this, they get less afraid of talking about sex and sexuality, that it is a beautiful, normal function of our bodies. Our bodies are evolutionarily designed in this way. And pleasure is just pleasure. It's not a dirty thing. It's not bad or wrong, but we get so conditioned and so messaged to sort of stay away from quote down there, especially women, which is so odd when the sole purpose of the clitoris is pleasure, right? It does nothing else but provide us pleasure. And yet we're told to stay far away from it. So getting acquainted with our bodies reducing shame about sex and sexuality and pleasure, I think is one of the paths to well-being and possibly even longevity. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on and for having all the great work that your center does. And we'll also make sure that your, the information about your center is also on the episode description and hopefully we can talk again soon. Yeah. Thank you, Josephine. This has been Mind Stories with me, Josephine McNary of Cal Psychiatry. With online psychiatry in California and 13 offices throughout Southern California and the Bay Area, Cal Psychiatry specializes in medication management, ADHD, anxiety disorders, alternative therapies, women's mental health, and more. Visit us at calpsychiatry.com and let us help you get back to your true self. Thanks for listening to Mind Stories and don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.